0: All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode. I'm sitting down with uh, Gabrielle Fondaro. So this is, I believe, your second time on the podcast. And um, every now and then, even though that was quite a while ago, I still get comments and questions about, uh, about that episode. And so uh, people really, really loved what you had to say. I think especially in the bodybuilding and kind of like, you know, powerlifting community, a lot of people talk about performance, but not a whole lot of people just talk about how you feel. And especially for bigger power lifters, that's a big issue is just always feeling bloated and things like that. So I know the first episode was really, really great, really well received. And I'm really excited because today we're going to talk a little bit more um, in that similar kind of vein. We're going to be talking about improving digestion, bloating and just kind of an upset stomach and things like that. So first off, Gabrielle, thank you so much for jumping on. It's, it's great to have you here.
1: Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you. I'm always appreciative of the fact that people are uh, interested in what I have to say, or at least tolerant of it. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so can, can you give a little bit of a background of, of yourself? I know kind of a lot's going on right now. Um, but just for people who maybe haven't heard the first episode or aren't necessarily familiar with you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I am known around Instagram, at least as a person who talks about um, gut health. (laughs) I have my PhD in the area of gut microbiome and human metabolism. So I studied probiotic supplementation and its effects on metabolism during high fat feeding. Uh, And before that, I got my bachelor's in exercise sport and health education. So after I finished my doctorate, I didn't really intend to do much in the gut microbiome world because that was 2014, and no one was really talking about it yet. <laughs> so I went on to teach uh, exercise science uh, and sport nutrition and a lot of anatomy and physiology uh, to exercise science and pre-nursing students for four years out in Georgia. And uh, in my I think third year of teaching, that's when um, Mike from RP uh, stumbled upon me in the ISSN Facebook group and, <laughs> and recruited me to RP I was an RP coach for four years and some change. It was incredible. I, I had the opportunity to speak uh, nationally and internationally about gut health. And I ended up finishing the gut health science book um, this year. And so RP is uh, in charge of like marketing and, and selling that. And so it's pretty cool to you know be able to reach the, um, a few different audiences in that way. And uh, this year I uh, went on to my own coaching business 100% uh, and then started up with Examine as well. So I'm an Examine researcher, gut health science communicator, lifestyle coach, and also run the comprehensive coaching Facebook group and um, and, and coach education side of things with my friend Shannon. So that's where I am now.
0: So a cu- couple things, a couple things you're A little about. bit, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. So um, I guess just to kind of start off the discussion, can you give like a a little bit of a broad description of gut health, what it is and what people are kind of talking about and and some of the common narratives around that right now?
1: Sure. I can't recall whether I had my working definition (laughs) when we talked last, but I I classically would answer this question uh, with the non-answer of we really don't have a consensus definition of gut health. And that still is the case. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't have a uh, characteristic profile of at least microbiome that is considered to be the picture of health or of a healthy gut. But most of the time when people say the words gut health, I think that they're probably referring to uh, one or all of three uh, characteristics. One would be, and I call these the three deeds of gut health. Um, and I want to be very transparent. It's not a research term. it's something that I made up. <laughs> but those uh, those three Ds are diversity, disease, and digestion. So they're thinking about the diversity of their gut microbiome, the um, absence or effective management of functional and organic GI diseases, and then the sort of subjective, and objective efficacy and comfort of their digestive process. And since that is a, and and, you know, gut health is an umbrella term. And even those three terms are sort of umbrella concepts that cover quite a lot. So that's why the idea of gut health is quite complex and hard to define.
0: No, that definitely makes sense. And so I guess we'll kind of start off with with more of the easier ones that uh, people usually experience, right? The bloating, the the gastrointestinal issues, things like that, and the heartburn. So what are some of the common reasons that people experience these things?
1: Well, so I'll be transparent again. You know, some of this is going to be sort of like a clinical um, perspective. So me not being a gastroenterologist, none of this is intended to be diagnostic. Um, But in terms of sort of the physiology of gas and bloating and indigestion, Um, If we want to start with the, the perceptions of gas and bloating, gas is produced by the microbes as they are fermenting whatever substrate they have present. And so they produce a variety of different gases, hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide, And we normally are passing that throughout the day. Um, And sometimes though, we might feel a little bit bloated because we're not passing it easily. There might be some constipation issues. There might just be a lot of gas that's produced very quickly, or someone may have um, irritable bowel syndrome. So they'll have a dysfunctional GI disease that either increases their perception of pain associated with the bloated, with the stretching uh, from that gas production, or it could, there could be other some some other factors that we haven't quite figured out yet um, that may modulate either the amount of gas produced or the regularity of the contractions of their GI tract. So there's some dysregulation there in the function, and then that leads to increased you know, amount or perception of gas and bloating in the GI tract moving up toward the the stomach, um, you know, the reasons behind things like nausea and indigestion are still poorly understood. And some of the old beliefs about, you know, ulcers or heartburn being caused by acid aren't really um, held up, you know, with improvements in in study designs and further research. So there are a lot of different factors. It could be psychological factors, things like stress, and, you know, just other troubling emotions. Um, it could be that a person has um, a non-IgE mediated food allergy that's causing some immediate and severe GI distress, um, you know, or it could be that they're lactose intolerant and they're having dairy and they're having a difficult time breaking that down. So there really are, you know, or it could be that they're, you know, have eaten something that's way out of date because they meal prepped last week and they don't want to throw it out. So they eat it and that's a little bit off.
0: No, that definitely makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned one thing that I personally am really, really interested in it, which is kind of like the, the psychological aspects of that and how that can, how they sort of influence each other. So what sort of relationship does stress have with gut health, with feeling like discomfort, bloating, things like that? And how does that relationship kind of, I guess, reciprocally affect one another as well? Mm.
1: That area is still very poorly understood, and the vast majority of research done on the gut-brain axis has so far been done in rodents, um, or there have been just sort of um, you know a, a low enrollment um, like brain imaging scans. So like someone has a probiotic drink, and then we scan their brain and we look at what areas light up. So the the practical applications are still very limited. What we've gathered from rodent studies thus far, though, is that the microbiome does play a role in brain development. So in rodents that are uh, reared without any microbiome, overall, they, they develop um, abnormally. So, so their immune systems, uh, their um, skeletal muscles, everything doesn't, doesn't, they don't seem to thrive, they don't develop normally. And the same goes for brain development. But that doesn't really translate to humans because no human is ever born without um, exposure to microbes, either uh, vaginally or, or on the skin. So humans are never developing without um, some set of microbes. But it, got, it gives us sort of a mechanistic insight, okay? Like they probably play some role in the development of the brain and nervous system. The other thing that we can gather from rodents is looking at fecal transplant studies. So uh, fecal matter is transplanted either from another rodent or from a human donor into uh, an empty mouse. <laughs> so one that was either raised germ-free or one that was, had its microbiome pretty much wiped out by antibiotics. And um, after that is done, researchers will observe the behavior of the mice, and they might assess them for anxiety-like behaviors or depression-like behaviors or autism-like behaviors. So again, there's a potential mechanism there because they can observe behavioral changes. But once again, the translation to humans is very limited because I think we would probably agree that mice don't experience depression, anxiety, um, or or you know other um, um, states like humans do. And so they're really just a proxy. And again, it's just to look at sort of like potential mechanisms. Is there a potential relationship here? So what we would need to do to be able to determine you know, the a potential cause and effect relationship would be to do this with specific microbes of interest based on observational studies and then replicate those studies in humans. So while we do sometimes see pattern of of microbiome profiles in individuals with anxiety, uh, and depression and autism spectrum disorder, there's so much inter individual variability that we still don't have like one, you know, this is a microbiome of depressed people, all depressed people have, you know, share these microbes, and so we can transplant those. So so that's just to give you an idea of sort of where we are in that area of research, which is like not very far. Um, that being said, there is a really high rate of, of co-occurrence in uh, depression, anxiety, and irritable bowel syndrome. So that does look like there is some sort of relationship here, or at least there's a correlation, you know, between these, um, these disease states. And one of the uh, actually effective interventions for uh, alleviating some of the symptoms of IBS is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And actually gut directed hypnotherapy is emerging in the literature as well as something that could be potentially uh, beneficial. So it could be that people who are undergoing CBT and this has got thrive hypnotherapy are changing their perception of the pain signals that they're receiving. So like the signaling is the same, but their perception is different, or maybe it's helping them feel less stressed. And so there um, is better, you know, there's less sympathetic nervous system tone and maybe better um, blood flow to the intestine. And that helps to, you know, um, in, improve the Um, environment of the cells, you know, easier time delivering oxygen and taking away waste. So things like that, because we do have this large vagus nerve that regulates about 75% of our parasympathetic nervous system tone. So that's like the rest and digest system. And they have observed bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain. Um, And the microbes can uh, ostensibly interact with with the neurons as well. And then the gut really has its own sort of second brain, the enteric nervous system as well. But, you know, they're all communicating either centrally or peripherally, peripherally. Um, but it's just trying to unravel that relationship. That's what we're still trying to work on.
0: Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And I mean, I guess part of that could literally even be and I mean, feel free to correct me if, if I might be wrong on this, but part of the CBT and and the impact that that could have as well is like even just maybe directing awareness around maybe eating behaviors or certain patterns that that you might notice that precede, let's say, an episode or something like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Crazy, yeah. That that's really really interesting. So, yeah. what what are some of the strategies that? you know, you usually go through with, let's say a client's brand new, they've been experienced these issues for a while, um, and haven't really seen any success, they go to you, what, what are some of those starting points you like to, to kind of take them through?
1: That's such a good question. Because I think it's an opportunity to um, highlight that sometimes what we attribute to, you know, a quote unquote, bad gut health is really a result of, you know, many years of continuous dieting, uh, very restrictive diets or diets that are really high in sort of like the classical health halo foods and diet foods that contain ingredients that cause GI distress. And so the one of the initial steps is to help a person, you know, identify the their dietary patterns and habits um, and and kind of what's behind them to look for areas where they feel comfortable making change. And so some of this can center around just energy balance. So, kind of like, are you really constipated, or have you just been eating only a thousand calories a day for the last six months? And you know, yes, you're constipated, but it's not that it's something necessarily that you're eating or something wrong with your, your gut. It's just that you have been chronically dieting for so many months. And you know your GI system motility will be reduced in that state. And maybe you've also been eating super, super high volume food tons and tons of fibrous vegetables. And so you're taking in 80 grams of fiber per day. And, you know, even if you're hydrating adequately, that could potentially cause some constipation, or are you feeling super gassy because you're eating an incredibly high FODMAP diet, which isn't necessarily bad or wrong. It's just something that, you know, we're kind of sold as like, this is a super healthy, nutritious diet and need to be eating avocado and broccoli and all these other things that are super gas promoting. So um, helping a person just understand, you know, the impact that these foods have on our, on our GI tract and why, and then it's not necessarily harmful or bad. It's just our microbes metabolizing the nutrients that are available to them. And also helping them understand the relationship between things like energy balance, exercise and lifestyle on things like gas and bloating and, and bowel regularity. And of course, all of this comes after, you know, we've gone through the standard, like visiting a gastroenterologist and getting screened for actual, you know, the actual presence or, or absence of disease. And once they have a clean bill of health, then it's, you know, kind of the green light on let's look at some dietary changes that could help you feel more comfortable.
0: Awesome. And so that kind of leads into my, my next question, I guess, with sort of diagnostic tools. There's a lot of stuff out there um, that's being touted as being really effective. So like food elimination diets, scratch tests, uh, food allergy tests, different things like that. So which, which ones of these tests Well, first of all, I guess, could you maybe highlight some of the more, uh, popular ones that are usually talked about and then, you know, just discuss which ones are validated, which ones haven't necessarily been validated and, and, you know, what people can do to, to make mm-hmm. sure they're not necessarily wasting their time and, and money on, uh, you know, some of these, some of these processes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there are valid clinical, um, as you mentioned, diagnostic and screening tools for known diseases. So for example, a person could go and have a colonoscopy and that can identify polyps, colorectal cancer. They could have a biopsy done that could identify uh, microscopic colitis. So that's a a valid uh, diagnostic tool. They could also look at blood markers like fecal calprotectin. So that's one that can help identify the presence of an inflammatory bowel disease. So pretty much the things that you're going to have done at a gastroenterologist, they're going to take a look at your symptoms because there are things like the Rome 3 criteria to um, as a screening tool for IBS. They're going to look at your symptoms. They might then order some, some diagnostic or, or screening tests and try to rule out you know diseases. So when people... Um, sometimes people have the idea or the perception that, like, IBS is is not a diagnosis, right? It's just they've ruled everything else out, and oh, all I got was, you know, this shitty t shirt. I've got IBS. But in fact, IBS has told you what's going on that you don't have an organic disease. It's not a disease of the tissues. There is a dysfunction in the physiology of your GI tract, and that can be managed. That can be managed through pharmaceutical means and through diet and lifestyle. So you do have an answer and you have some potential interventions. Just that your gastroenterologist might not be the person to guide you through the low FODMAP diet or to help you with lifestyle modifications. So just kind of keeping that in mind because what can happen is that people feel um, maybe invalidated or like they're not being heard or like this diagnosis doesn't make sense to them with what they're experiencing. And so they leave the gastroenterologist and they go to some alt medicine practitioner. And that's where you can really run into the red flags of invalid, uh, non-clinically relevant tests. And some of them are very obvious. Sometimes, you know, if a person, you know, presses, pokes on your stomach and they hear some gurgling and they say, oh, that's candida. Most people will say, ah, that seems a little bit fishy. What gets really confusing and what can be very um, um, easy to market as scientific are things like the IgG food sensitivity test or Dutch tests, or GI map tests that come looking like they have reference ranges, like they are clinically relevant, like they're actual diagnostic tools. And indeed they are measuring things in a, in a valid way in the sense that like validity is just that the test is measuring what it says it's going to measure. So you go get an IgG food sensitivity test and that test did indeed measure your IgG antibody levels but it's the interpretation of the test that matters and that makes it misleading and inaccurate and potentially harmful. So in the case of an IgG food sensitivity test, practitioners are interpreting that level of IgG antibody as a problematic immune response and a sign of a food sensitivity. And then they're telling people to eliminate those foods. And in fact, that IgG antibody is a recognition antibody. It is a tolerance antibody. It's just showing that this person habitually eats this food and that their immune system has recognized that it is not an intruder, it's not a pathogen. So then these people eliminate their habitual foods and they're left with 10 foods that they can eat So maybe their caloric intake goes down, maybe by chance they reduce their FODMAP intake and so their GI symptoms resolve. But quite often, you know, they don't feel any better. And now they're really confused because they eliminated all these foods and they don't feel that much better. And now they're very low energy and they have a headache and, and they feel brain fog. Well, then what happens? They get diagnosed with Candida or adrenal fatigue. Is it really that? Or do you have brain fog because you're eating 700 calories a day? So that's where these can be really, really harmful. Or the the case of the GI map test, where companies set arbitrary reference ranges of microbes, and then these practitioners are using these tests as a diagnostic tool. Oh, you have too much streptococcus and not enough acromantia, and they act as though we can precisely modify microbes, and that is really not the case. And so once again, people are misled and, you know, potentially missing a serious diagnosis or potentially missing a relatively simple, non-invasive modification to their diet and lifestyle that they didn't have to spend, you know, $300 to figure out.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I've, I've had clients and even actually one of my sisters uh, has celiac disease and she's had uh, a battle of this for many, many years. Um, mm-hmm. as well, you know, seeing different specialists, seeing different people who've prescribed her a whole host of, of different, uh, tests and, and different things like that, that just have not worked and have made things worse. And it's, it's kind of funny actually, because a lot of that sounds really similar to, um, kind of the paradigm in, in training with personal trainers where they like overvalue. um, maybe like positions or, or injuries, like they, they blow things up. So it's like, Oh, you have anterior pelvic tilt, which means that you're going to have low back pain and this, and this, and this, and they like over-diagnose people. So now they're mm-hmm. scared to move and because they're scared to move. They're not exercising now because they're scared to exercise. Their tissue tolerance is going down and it's just like, they're actually more susceptible to to injury in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it almost is like this self creating problem at, at times and, yeah you know, especially if someone is a doctor, if they are like a naturopathic doctor, it's like, oh, well, they went to school, they're a doctor. And now you're like, well, I can't trust anyone anymore. And so it's just, it's, it's really, really dangerous. That was something, like I said, my sister went through and it's, it's been very, very difficult for her um, as well. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So what sort of impact uh, does, let's say like exercise have on, on gut health?
1: Well, on gut health, uh, that's a little, that might be a little bit of a different answer from looking at like the gut microbiome or, um, you know, GI distress. So I'll kind of like go piece by piece. Um, In terms of microbial diversity, we actually only have two studies on deck at the moment that looked at the effects of physical activity um, and controlled for diet, or excuse me, for. And only two of those actually found a, a direct relationship between physical activity and the microbiome. And so right now, most of the data is A, looking just at endurance athletes or kind of like um, sport, sport athletes, so like rugby players and soccer players. Um, but for the most part, we're looking at like cyclists and runners and B, like I mentioned, we're not controlling for diet. So in many cases, these athletes um, and, and um, you know, even recreational exercisers, you know, they might be eating a diet that looks different from the sedentary counterparts because they might be eating more complex carbohydrates, higher protein, and so on. But it looks like from what we can tell from a few studies that have actually um, done interventions, that there is some relationship between my between fitness level, cardiovascular fitness level, Um, and just physical activity in general and microbial diversity in that um, we tend to have higher microbial diversity and more butyrate producers and people who are physically active. So that's kind of interesting. And there's a pretty cool study done in 2020 that looked at um, probiotic supplementation in bodybuilders. And the probiotics really didn't do anything, but what was really interesting was that they found sort of on accident that the bodybuilders who ate a very high protein, low fiber diet, their microbial diversity was not any different from the sedentary controls and those that did eat adequate fiber, they had the uh, elevated level of of diversity that we would sort of expect to see. So that that lends to the idea that it might be really important for us to get adequate fiber along with our physical activity to support uh, a diverse group of microbes.
0: That's pretty wild. So is is that during contest prep or is that off-season?
1: Well, they didn't say like where they were in their their training cycle, but they basically just like their intervention was to have them eat a very high protein, um, like low carb diet or one that was more like moderate protein. They called it sort of a prudent diet. Mm -hmm. And then they compared them to the sedentary controls. So, but it is sort of indicative of, you know, like late in prep, people are usually not eating, you know, many uh, complex carbohydrates, they may be eating fibrous vegetables. But you know, the the microbes are a little bit picky about which type of dietary fiber, uh, they're going to utilize for energy, and they really aren't utilizing cellulose, which is kind of the primary fiber we will get in like lettuce and whatnot. So, um, you know, it's just something to, to think about. And, you know, but again, we don't know what the clinical implications of that are. Like, you know, what does it mean if you have higher microbial diversity? And, you know, does that matter as much as just the functional diversity? Because what we do tend to see also is that even if we lose groups of microbes, like there's a change in the taxonomy and just the population, we don't necessarily lose functionality because other microbes can do the same thing, you know, so there's like a level of redundancy. So that still remains to be seen, you know, whether whether and, and how much that matters.
0: That's wild, man. Like the more that I, the more that you learn about the body, the more you're like, man, these are pretty perfectly engineered machines.
1: Seriously. <laughs> it's like, wow, like how is this all happening kind of yeah. on accident? And it's okay. Um, so yeah, so that was pretty interesting to look at just sort of like the influence of, you know, potentially influence of, of physical activity on the microbiome um, in terms of its effects on digestion. Uh, We do have a little bit more data, again, on endurance athletes, um, indicating that really high intensity endurance exercise, especially in the heat, tends to uh, increase markers of intestinal permeability and intestinal damage. So most of the time we're looking at things like, um, um, like zonulin or, um, you know, circulating endotoxin. So uh, if you are, you know, that type of athlete, it behooves you to, uh, you know, take in adequate hydration and like some form of carbohydrate beverage because that seems to help. But again, you know, it could be just like we see that post-workout inflammatory cascade, you know, and suppressing that is problematic you know is it really an issue if we see this post exercise change in intestinal permeability or is it just a normal part of our acute you know response to exercise and then it subsides on its own um so we don't really know that but there is um there is a sort of a phenomenon this exercise induced gastrointestinal syndrome that tends to uh affect females more frequently than males and tends to affect endurance athletes more so than resistance training athletes and it really is just characterized by um, diarrhea and and sort of abdominal pain that occurs um, after an intense bout of endurance exercise. Uh, as far as resistance training, I'm collaborating with a faculty member out in Tennessee, Uh, And we are actually looking into the effects of an intense resistance training bout on markers of GI damage and permeability and subjective GI uh, distress in male and female collegiate athletes, along with gut microbiome data, I should say fecal microbiome data, to see if we can start parsing out some of those relationships.
0: That'll be really interesting to see when that comes out. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, we've got some, we're in the data analysis phase right now. So it's interesting because we've already, we've met and kind of looked at the preliminary data. Um, we don't have the gut microbiome data yet. So we've got like a bioinformatics company that's helping us with that. Um, but we do have, we do see some pretty significant differences um, based on both um, gender and um, one Brent max and, you know, correlates with permeability and GI distress. So we're going to just work on like kind of normalizing the data so we can get, you know like you know, is there an effect of, um, if we, if we look at like percent one, or like we look at one rep max, um, you know, based on like percent as a percentage of body weight and things like that. So it'd be really interesting to see because so far only one other study has looked at anything similar and they found that, um, after an intense bout of, I think it was just leg press, they actually did see reduced absorption of post-workout protein. So that was kind of interesting to see.
0: Hmm. I guess it seems kind of surprising to me.
1: Yeah. I, that it would happen that fast. Like one, but you know, like do some yeah. intense light press and then your, your GI tract is all like,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially cause like given, given certain nutrient timing considerations, right? Like you would, you would imagine that um, like protein utilization and, and uh, I guess transport would be improved during, during that period. Um. So you mentioned hydration a moment ago, so looking at hydration because I know a lot of people struggle with that, um, What sort of impact does hydration have on you know just proper uh, gut health?
1: There hasn't been quite a lot on just like looking at you know general hydration like in sedentary populations and whatnot. obviously you know dehydration could lend to constipation. Uh, If you have an improper uh, osmolarity of the drink that you're having, like say you had like tons and tons and tons of fructose in your beverage, or even just tons of sugar, um, and that was a much higher concentration than the contents of your intestine, water follows solute. So that means that the water would be potentially uh, attracted to the to your intestine be pulled into the lumen of the intestine and that could lead to diarrhea. So just like very loose stool because you've taken in a beverage that's too concentrated and now that water is being pulled into the lumen and you've got you know some some runner's trots, as they like to say uh, very adorably. Um, but the other thing is that it probably contributes to, um, difficulty regulating core temperature and it looks like heat stress. And then, you know, in combination with the hypoxic or low oxygen environment that happens because blood is being shunted away from the intestinal tract, that though that can lead to the generation of reactive oxygen species. So those can cause some cell damage, um, could potentially change things like pH and that can influence on the the activity of microbes um you know, whether that matters so much over the course of a of a couple hours is still questionable uh, there's been one study that I can recall looking at elite endurance athletes and they did measure the microbiome in terms of functionality before and after their marathon. and there was a change in functionality even in those couple of hours. Uh, if memory reserves me correctly there was like, the microbes were, um, or the gene expression. So they weren't doing quite as much like energy metabolizing and they were doing a little bit more in terms of like flagellar assembly or something. So I like to think of them being like, oh, we're being jostled around and like, you know, let's work on like improving the strength of our flagella so we can stay where we want to be. But that's just me making things up. We we don't really know what was going on, but um, it is interesting to see that, you know, potentially like there are changes that are occurring uh, even in the short term.
0: Yeah, that's pretty wild. And so, for individuals who are experiencing, let's say, either loose stool or constipation, like what are what are some of the main things you look at in either case to to help correct that?
1: Um, I say go to a gastroenterologist if you haven't been to one already. But (laughs) but in all seriousness, um, after that, usually looking at just the basics of energy balance first off, because if a person is, like I said, been chronically under eating, um, that can quite often contribute to constipation. And there is a, a fairly high co-occurrence also of um, the perception of constipation and bloating um, with eating pathology. So just something to keep in mind that it can be sometimes a red flag. You know, Sometimes people are perceiving themselves as feeling very bloated um, when in fact they just are not used to normal postprandial fullness and distension. So um, that's something to consider. Uh, second to that would be looking at, you know, the kind of like the FODMAP content of their diet. So looking at things like, um, you know, if they're eating FODMAP stands for fermentable, um, and monosaccharides, and polyols. So we're looking at, you know, fructose, which is obviously found in a ton of fruits. There are FODMAPs that are pretty ubiquitous in vegetables as well. So things like cauliflower, mushrooms, avocado, um, and then things like beans, whole grain, so there are plenty of foods that are, are wholesome and nutritious, considered to be like whole foods. But a person might have a dietary pattern that's really, really high in FODMAPs, and they're experiencing uh, loose bowel movements and bloating and gas because of that. Then, in that case, you know, some education around FODMAPs, um, potentially guidance through the, the low FODMAP process, because it's not intended to be a long term diet, um, and uh, you know, looking also at things like the you know common food allergens. Although, again, people can actually visit an allergist and be screened for potential allergens. They're not diagnostic tests, but it's something else to keep in mind that you, know, you could visit a gastro, visit um, uh, an allergist, kind of get those things ruled out, get a sense of what potentially could be going on. And then from there, a systematic process of elimination and reintroduction uh, of foods that makes sense to eliminate and reintroduce. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of uh, fine tuning from there, you know, in most cases, I, about 70% of individuals do respond to a low FODMAP diet, um, the rest may not respond to because, you know, maybe something like went wrong, maybe they ate some FODMAP accident. Uh, and some people just tend to not respond. And, and there's some evidence illustrating that it could be due to kind of like their unique set of microbes that, uh, you know, there's there's something else going on for them. And and maybe one day, you know, we'll be able to predict a person's potential response to the diet based on their microbial profile. But again, that's still really early on. Um, but you know, and other things like, you know, is a person eating a lot of like, you know, protein bars and protein shakes and taking in a ton of sugar alcohols? That's a pretty obvious culprit as well.
0: No, that makes sense. And so for a lot of the people listening to this are probably going to have either strength-based goals or, you know, muscle-based goals uh, wanting to get bigger. I don't know a whole lot of people who really follow me who are looking to get smaller, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So, so for those individuals, I know that sometimes eating enough to actually gain weight can be a little bit problematic because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing a good job getting enough fruits and veggies in that can be quite a bit of a food volume just on its own. And then you've got to get in, you know, your maybe your rice or potatoes or whatever else it is. And, and that can, you know, collectively accumulate quite a bit in your stomach and, and just kind of cause some bloating, some discomfort. So do you have any sort of strategies to either reduce or, or you know, effectively manage bloating and, and discomfort while simultaneously still having a good, well-balanced diet of, of you know, like whole foods and uh, really nutrient dense foods?
1: Mm. It's really just about balance, you know, meeting the recommendations for those whole foods, you know, your five a day of fruits and veggies, but then also keeping in mind that there's, you know, within, it, we're looking really at entire dietary patterns. There's not going to be like one food that is inherently deleterious to health. And so it might be appropriate for a person to switch up their whole grain bagels or their whole grain bread for, uh, you know, refined carbohydrates, especially when we're looking at pre-peri and post-workout. You know, if you want to, like, if you really want to, you know, set your set yourself on fire in the gym, like, yes, yeah, have a whole grain, uh, like plenty of fructose and lots of fat before your workout. And like, you'll be on and off the platform pretty fast because you're going to have to run to the bathroom. So the things to really be careful with before you work out would be things like fiber, fat, and fructose, because those are going to really, um, lead to some GI distress. It's not having to take a pretty solid poop in the middle of your squat session. So in that case, yeah, have some gummy bears or, you know, use some table sugar or some powdered lemonade in your workout beverage. And before you work out, go ahead and have a minimal fiber meal, have the like white bagel or pancakes, Um, you know, keeping fat and fiber and fructose low, or pop tarts, although, you know, those might be a little bit high in fructose, if they have got high fructose corn syrup, but it might work for some people. So I think it's like moving away from the idea of like, you know, demonizing foods and saying like, well, that's just junk food that has no place in in someone's diet. If you need to eat 4000 calories a day, it might be really helpful for you to include some of those things or even taking foods that you know you um, you could add to. So if you're having like a sandwich, can you put some, you know, some jelly on that sandwich? You know, that's something that's going to be, um, you know, potentially higher in sugar. And then same thing with the post-workout meal. You know, you might find that you feel more comfortable having refined carbohydrates. It's, they're much more dense, they take up less volume in the stomach, and so it's easier to get them down. Um, and same thing with something like um, liquid carbohydrates. You don't need to go like buy an expensive mass gainer. You could just like make that yourself with some sugar and you know whey protein isolate or protein of your choice. Um, but you know, just those little modifications to make the same volume of food more energy dense and then bias the like the high fiber foods to other times of the day when you know you're not trying to kind of eat potential stomach discomfort.
0: Yeah, that was something for me, anyways, that uh I found it be pretty helpful. So um, I'm definitely the kind of person who I find that if I'm quite strict with my diet, I actually have zero issues. I don't get cravings. I don't ever feel temptations. Like I feel great. But then if mm-hmm. I try and do the whole 80-20 thing, that's usually when I start running into those like you know, kind of the ambivalence <laughs> of, mm. of like I want the Oreos, but I also want this, and so I actually find it a lot easier to be a little bit more strict, and and my quality of life is way better if I do that. Um, sure. And so for me, I was eating a lot of Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm like 270 now, so mm. I'm I'm actually still cutting, but before when I was quite a bit bigger, um, yeah, I was mostly doing that just through Whole Foods, and I don't really take like supplements i don't really drink protein shakes or like that and so that's that's a lot of food to be eating and (laughs) for a while there was really tough and one of the things that that i did uh was you know post-workout i'd have a big bowl of cereal you know so Mm -hmm. like fruit loops or something like that really really high carbohydrate and that would make it so much easier because that would take like 150 grams of carbs off my plate just like that you know and, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, I feel way better, just more stable energy throughout the day. And then having the, the, you know, peri-workout nutrition, having like some sort of dextrose drink or whatever made a huge, huge difference in, I mean, also actually my performance, I just felt like I wouldn't gas out halfway through. Yeah. So oh, yeah. th- those little, those little recommendations that you gave are like super helpful or can be super helpful for a lot of people for sure. Okay. Um, so in terms of like just strategies to improve overall gut health, uh, I, I know you've kind of gone through quite a few of them here, but could you just kind of summarize uh, a few good strategies that would help most people?
1: Yeah, sure. It's going to sound really basic. <laughs> so I'll start with the most foundational things, engage in regular physical activity and eat a wide variety of plants. And that doesn't have to be vegetables. That's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, Um plant-based meat products, you know, well, or, you know, not meat products, but soy, things like that. So eat a wide variety of plants, get regular physical activity. The next layer would be limit your use of alcohol, you know, um, moderate to low intake of red wine doesn't seem to be problematic, but in addition to that, you know, just know that the the benefits are not outweighed by the risks. Uh, And then things like abstaining from smoking, Um, and, uh, and only using drugs as recommended by your physician, especially when it comes to things like antibiotics, because antibiotic resistant microbes are, are really an issue that come from people kind of just abusing antibiotics. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, if you want to add fermented foods to your diet, great. Just keep in mind that dairy is the only fermented food that is considered to be probiotic at the moment. Probiotic meaning that it contains live microbes that when ingested confer a benefit to the host. So kind of like save your, your money and whatnot and, you know, stick with fermented dairy if that's something that you want to do. But aside from that, I mean, microbes, your, your microbiome is pretty stable. Um, there's not much that you can do to completely obliterate it. You know, even if you're on antibiotics, it will, it will revert to another sort of stable state afterwards. There can be targeted use of probiotics. If you have some diarrhea associated with antibiotics or traveling and potentially um, in folks with IBD and IBS, it could help with some of the symptoms. Uh, And peppermint oil is another uh, evidence-based intervention for abdominal pain and IBS. That's my hierarchy. Physical activity, plenty of plants, you know, limit alcohol, use drugs prudently. And if you want to supplement, use probiotics wisely and fermented berry.
0: Awesome, so, as far as probiotics go are are you those like over the counter or are they like medical grade prescribed stuff?
1: They have medical food grade probiotics available, but most of the probiotics that you're going to get on the market are just going to be an over the counter form um so the medical food grade would be uh it used to be called v s l three now, I think VSL3 still exists, but there are other formulations, like something happened with the patent, but that was what I was studying. That was what I was using during my, my dissertation. So those are usually um, sold in extremely high doses, you know, many tens of billions per packet, like 90 billion per packet, usually as an intervention for um, inflammatory bowel disease. And the stuff that you can get over the counter, something like an S. that's um, been shown uh, to have efficacy with antibiotic-associated diarrhea, other things like some of the bifido and lactobacilli strains are helpful for kind of like, you know, other, some of the mild symptoms of IBS. Um, but again, it's very person-specific, the effects are strain-specific, and um, the the literature on as a whole is really rife with, you know, um, kind of poorly done studies, lack of, of replication. Um, and a lot of heterogeneity that makes it hard to come up with a consensus statement about which strains might be best for what and how we
0: should take them. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Awesome. So where can people find you?
1: Uh, at vitamin PhD on Instagram and Facebook. I am, as I mentioned, I saw the, the science of the gut health ebook that I wrote with Dr. Jessie Hoffman, who also did her, her research in the area of the gut microbiome. They can find that on the RP website. And if they check out vitaminphdnutrition.com, they can find out how to uh, work with me one-on-one for either lifestyle or gut uh, health science inquiry.
0: Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Make sure you go give her a follow and check out the book. Um, what can people expect to get from, from reading the book?
1: So the book was intended to be a uh, a no BS, a very objective overview of the literature. So you can kind of think of it like a, a systematic review on steroids. So we cover an introduction to the microbiome, um, talking about the taxonomy uh, and functionality of the microbiome and how we research it. And we talk about the process of digestion absorption and how the microbiome plays a role in that. So microbial metabolism of macronutrients, their role in um, metabolism, in mood, in GI diseases, we actually break down pretty much uh, most of the the main GI diseases and we'll talk about some of the characteristic microbial um, differences in those between uh, versus healthy people. We have a huge section on gut health pseudoscience as well, so things like candida, mold toxicity, um, IgG food sensitivity tests, EBO. You know, some of it's complete, completely made up. Some of it is is pseudoscience that's sort of just kind of misrepresented. So really, it's a guide to what the research really says about the gut microbiome to ensure that people are making informed choices about, you know, what supplements they want to use or what dietary pattern they might want to follow. Um, And it also is very transparent about, you know, what we don't know yet.
0: That's awesome. So again, that's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Um, I ordered mine a while back. I haven't gotten to it yet because it's like I still got three more ahead of it, but I'm definitely looking forward to reading it. So thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It was really great to have you on again.
1: It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you.